Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Book Club Live podcast with writer Lucy Caldwell, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square in Dublin. My name's Laura Slattery and I'm thrilled that the Irish Times Book Club title this month is Lucy's short story collection Multitudes, published by Faber and Faber. The stories in Multitudes explore the pain and heartache of growing up and capture the intensity of formative friendships and relationships of our youth. Lucy is also the author of the novels All the Beggars Riding, The Meeting Point and Where They Were Missed, and her plays include Leaves, Guardians and Notes to Future Self. The Rooney Prize for Irish Literature and the Dylan Thomas Prize are among the many awards she has received for her work. And she's also having a very busy 2016 for reasons that we'll discuss later in this podcast. Um, But for now, please welcome Lucy Caldwell. Lucy, can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about the birth of this collection, how it came together? I've always loved short stories. Um, I always, I've always loved reading them. And just after I wrote my first novel, um, which I wrote at university, there was a, about an 18-month time lag between it being bought and it being published. And so in that time, I wrote a collection of interlinking short stories. And they were all set between Belfast and London, where I was then living. They were all narrated by girls or young women. I saw the whole thing perfectly in my head. And I finished, just about finished the collection with a sinking feeling that it wasn't any good. And I realised that I had nothing of the craft or skill or technique to pull any of my ideas off. I'd seen it so clearly, you know, it seemed so precise. It, everything I, I, I thought I saw, I saw it in my head. I couldn't do any of it. Um, I realised that I'd thought that short stories would be easier than a novel because they're shorter. I mean, that's almost an embarrassing thing to admit to. That's such a sort of rookie error. I thought as well, I think there's something about the best short stories. They seem so inevitable, even when they're surprising. There's something that seems almost effortless about the best short stories, I think. And and I realised that I just, I just couldn't do it. Um, in this collection, there are two of the stories, their first drafts go back in my various computers and, and, and memory drives to 11 years ago and there were two of the ideas that I just couldn't quite give up on and I kept coming back to them over the years until I finally thought I had enough of the technique to pull them off and I think it is something to do with writing, you know I've written three novels a novella, several stage plays, lots of radio dramas, monologues, I think it's taken me a decade, you know, just over a decade of writing all those forms to, to have enough of the the understanding of, of what, what it takes to make a short story work. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you're accomplished in so many different forms, uh, as you say, um, but short story is the one um, that, that, that you maybe... Is it because you just were so young when you started doing them and that you don't, it was just because it was the first thing that you came to? Um, or is there something unique about the, the short story that is so difficult to master? I think it's the most magical of forms. I think it took me a long time to learn that on one level you're writing a narrative, as you might for a longer prose work but at the same time you have to be completely in control of the symbolic the metaphoric almost as if you're writing a poem so it's working at both of those being in control of of both of those elements of the story I think is very tricky also there's there's the short stories are strange and magical and there's something alchemical about them you know the best short stories I think unfurl in you after you finish reading them um but Sylvia Plath I always come back to this description of her failed poems and she talks about them as if she's seeing sort of specimens pickled in jars and she says they smile and smile and smile at me but still their lungs won't fill and their hearts won't catch 
And I think there's something of that. Sometimes you finish a short story. I mean, a lot get abandoned in draft form, but sometimes you finish a short story and you think that it's okay, you're, you're reasonably happy with it. And then as the days or the weeks go on, something about it fails to be more than the sum of its parts. You know, it doesn't live, it doesn't, 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 what am I doing with my hands? It doesn't take flight, you know? And, and so there's, there's that, there's that magic, I think, about short stories. It makes it very, a very addictive form to, to try to pursue. And two of the older stories um, in the collection are, are 13, which sort of deals with kind of acute loss after a um, young girl's friend moves away and uh, she's sort of really trapped in adolescence and just can't wait to be, <laughs> I suppose, older and not be bullied and everything else. And uh, Cypress Avenue, which is more from the point of view of a mature person going back home and, and trying to maybe look at their home life in a, in, in, in a hopefully uh, more optimistic way, perhaps. Can you tell us how those stories changed since you first wrote them? What, what was that magic? Yeah, the, the difficulty with 13 is that it's... It's, it's got so much in it. It's such an emotional story and it's such a tough story. It's such a tough story about loneliness and it's such a tough story about being bullied and being terrified of growing up. And So she's lost her best friend and she can't replace her. She's really. lost her best friend. She's feeling completely bereft. She's also suddenly lost her childhood, lost her innocence, is flailing and, and, and floundering in this, this scary adult world and doesn't know who to go to for guidance or what to do and it took a long time to know which bits of that story to write and which bits to leave out and initially it had it's quite a, it's one of the longer stories in the collection um it's not long by the standards of many short stories you know many of my stories tend to be maybe 3,000 words I think this is still only about seven or eight thousand but it's it's one of the longer stories in the book and initially I thought there was a whole other section that 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 happened elsewhere and the story was very cumbersome for many years and then I suddenly realized that what we need to end with is a moment of levity and a moment of gentleness and a moment of of hope so even though that's a memory in the story it's what was needed to balance the story so with that story the difficulty was very much getting the emotional tenor of it right and knowing when you need to lift it and when you can let it be dark and when you when it's getting too sentimental, you know, and when you need to get go in deeper, and it was getting all those emotional layers. Well, I actually there. think it's very subtle, but you know, she's lost her friend, but she kind of ends up performing an act of friendship to somebody else, and so maybe she doesn't, you know, feel the love back from that friend yet. But but there is a kind of a a, a sense of hope from from that that maybe yes, and it was getting getting the balance of all of that was the really tough thing with that story. Cypress Avenue was very t- tough for other reasons. It's, it was very tough technically because it's written in the second person. Actually, four of the stories in, out of these 11 are written in the second person. And that's something that I shied away from for years. I mean, some of my favourite stories, um, David Foster Wallace's Forever Overhead, which is such a beautiful, tender story. It's, it's about a, a young boy who decides on the last day of summer that he's going to dive from the top diving board in the public pool on one level it's about that on the other level it's about everything else growing up everything it's written in the second person and another story that I love Laurie Moore um, how to be another woman from her first collection self-help so I love both of those stories but the second person it was sort of 
it was quite popular in you know that sort of 90s mm. American way and and there's nothing I hate more than a second person story done badly you know you feel quite often as a reader really corralled when someone tells you you are 16 and this is the best summer of your life and you think stop haranguing me you know don't don't tell me don't order me and and does it particularly suit the second person narratives where people are kind of feel a little bit trapped yeah well I think what works really well is say um Jay McInerney's you know Bright Lights Big City it works because it starts off you are not the kind of guy that would find himself in a place like this and there's the idea that the narrator his better self is talking to him and I found that the second person where it works for me is when there's that degree of intimacy there's someone who doesn't know how they've turned out to be this sort of person. They're far from the person that they thought they were, or they feel detached from themselves, or they feel they feel sad. There's a sort of gulf somehow. Or it works, I use it in, in one of the stories in um, Through the Wardrobe. I like the idea that it's almost like an older self talking back, saying, you know, things will be okay. So so the second person works in the but I Cypress Avenue is a second person and it's also written in the future tense. So it's, it's, you will do this, you will do that, you will do that. And then at one point it tips into, you will have done this, you will have done that. And so just rhythmically, it was a real challenge. I always write, um, I think that comes from being a, a playwright as well. I always write the rhythms of my character's speech and, and the way that the sentences flow are very important. And so with that story, it needed to have this, this restless rhythm that built to a euphoric conclusion it's really hard to do that when you've got far many more syllables in your lines, but because you're not writing the present tense, I do this, I do that. You're writing, you will do this, you will have done that. So just technically, you've got, you sometimes it can get too cluttered with 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 syllables. So it was really hard to get the the rhythms of that right. Um, so, so that, that story was something, technically very difficult. That was something that came in late in later. Then. Yeah, you shouldn't know. You know, reading that story or listening to that story. You shouldn't know at all. It should it should feel seamless. You shouldn't I, notice the rhythms of it. No, I mean I actually I just I was just um, I just love the, the the narrative of the story. You know the connection that she makes, and she's traveling back home to Belfast. But because of the meeting she has at, at the uh, airport, that it just completely changes her view of going home. And yes. for the person she meets as well. Yes, that's right. It's a story very much about belonging as well and longing and belonging and where we belong and what it means to feel to feel that you're neither of one place nor the other which I suppose you know I'm born in Belfast grew up in Belfast um, left when I was 18 to go to university um, I've lived away since um, I was back for a month when my novel was One City One Book in May 2013 I'm back for just over a month now for my three sisters rehearsals but I'm back in my parents' house, you know, the house that they moved into when I was 11. I haven't lived independently as an adult in the city I consider my own, which is a strange thing, especially because my work, my creative work, my plays, my novels are drawn back to Belfast. And funnily, they're just starting to um, be set in, in London or in London as well. And I was talking to Kevin Barry about this and he said, oh, it's because it takes 11 years. He said, you need to live somewhere in 11 years and then you can you can start to write about it properly. OK, yeah, so the, I guess just memories of your childhood in Belfast just haven't gone away and they've informed a lot of the work uh, that, that you do. I assume that's sort of the process that's going through your head. That's right. My first novel, I was young when I wrote it. You know, I wrote it in university and it was made up. Um, the narrator was 
maybe about eight or nine years older than I would have been. So it wasn't written in the Belfast that I knew. I remember constantly um, you know, ringing my, my mum or my dad while I was writing it to say, if a character was driving from here to here, um, I know that that dual carriageway probably didn't exist. Where, what route would they have taken? You know, yeah. So it was a real shock to me when people assumed that that book was autobiographical, as so many first novels are. And I remember saying to people, but you know, I, I made it all up. My life wasn't interesting enough. Um, then with the second novel, I was determined, you know, people, I was determined to sort of prove that you could write about something that you knew nothing about. So I set the second novel in Bahrain in the Middle East, where my aunt and uncle and cousins had lived when I was younger. I'd visited them briefly for one Easter. I went out there for a few weeks, researched the novel. It's also about the wife of an evangelical missionary who's losing her faith. Um, I grew up, I'm fascinated by religion and, and by faith and always have been but I'm not a practicing Christian or Buddhist or, or, or anything else myself and so again that was writing from the perspective of something else that I think then it took um it took a while to have the part of it's the craft and technique I think it took me a while to have the confidence to use the place I'd grown up in the things that were most familiar most intimate to me and to know that I could make them interesting enough and worthy enough of of writing about. and with that came more autobiographical themes would that be fair to say yes and I think it's something to do with a short story form as well I found that it demanded a far greater emotional honesty or emotional intensity of me as a form as if you had to really hold yourself open I'm I'm, I'm sort of opening up my chest here to show (laughs) my my the sinews and the heart and to, to to the people in the audience um yeah, I found out when people would say when I was young and writing, they'd say, you know, what have you got to write about? And I always used to think, but people are so endlessly fascinating and you can meet someone and have no idea what's really going on. You know, what their secrets are, what their hopes are, what their loves and losses are. Um, my, that really informed my third novel, which is about a, a, a plastic surgeon who leads a double life. He has a wife and two children in Belfast and a mistress and two children for decades in London. Uh, it's written from the point of view of the mistress's daughter grown up. And after that novel was published, even while I was telling people that, that I was writing it, so many people would offer me their stories. And some of the stories of double lives were were so unbelievable and, and would have seemed too unbelievable for a book of fiction. And, and I was fascinated collecting all of those stories. So I've always been so fascinated by other people and, and their stories. And so I think it, yeah, it's, it's taken me a while to come back to using directly and there is a kind of a, a there, you know there is a thematic link between these stories there just seems to be you know there's a sense of loss and grief and and fear I suppose for the future as well of some of the young characters and, and in some cases there's kind of a sense of guilt perhaps but uh, you know when did you know that you had a, a collection ready to be published I saw the collection almost as a, a cubist novel you know none of the characters have names which was a deliberate choice Sometimes it took um, a bit of manoeuvring in order not to name them. There's there's a moment in the story 13 where I've got lots of people in the scene and the character needs a name. And and so I have the, the, her friend has given a fake name, obviously a fake name. She's given her Winona um, after Winona Ryder. Um, that's the only time I think it has a really good period of detail as well. <laughs> it's, it's, exactly, it's a period detail. But I wanted the sense that even though the details change from story to story, you know, some characters have brothers, some have sisters, some, some, it, it can't be the same character. And yet, I like the idea that that it sort of is the story. I the collection I saw as um, 
as very coherent. I spent a long time with my editor discussing the, the flow of the 11 stories and which should be the opening story. We discussed it a lot like, like an album. Yeah. You know, like putting the stories Track together. Order. Yeah, and the emotional movement of the whole collection. And I know that, you know, people open a short story and they go for the title that most appeals to them or they go for the shortest one or they go for, you know, but I like the idea that if you read it from the beginning to the end, as I've intended, loosely the characters grow up. Um, also, the first few stories are are more closed down and more difficult. And I wanted this sense of complexity and tenderness and, and real opening up towards the end so so putting the stories together in in that way was um was took a lot of time took a lot of time and care and was you know was there any story or, or were they all were they painful to write at any point emotionally rather than technically or <laughs> yeah well say a story like 13 or Cypress Avenue which I've already talked about but um this the title story Multitudes um that's a story that I've written that's perhaps most directly autobiographical. Um, I have a, a two-year-old son, and just after he was born, he was he was gravely ill in hospital. Um, so we spent weeks with him in 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 the hospital wards, and I wrote this story. It, it seems it seems sort of unbelievable to me now, but I know that I did because I have the email date at which I sent it to Sinead Gleason, who included it in her anthology, The Long Days Back. I wrote this story between when my son was seven weeks and we left hospital, we didn't know if that was for the last time or not, or it turned out to be, thankfully, between when he was seven weeks and eight weeks. And I wrote it in bursts. I wrote it on my iPhone, breastfeeding him at 3 a.m. I wrote it with him wrapped to me in a, a sling, you know, standing at the kitchen counter, like dancing. Standing up, yeah. Um, I wrote it, and it seemed... We'd just been through such an intense experience, and it seemed utterly transgressive to write like that because I'd never written that closely to my own experience before but it seemed utterly necessary it felt like writing for survival and it felt like I wasn't just writing it to splurge everything that happened I was writing it because because formally the experience of having having someone ill in hospital uh, and in an intensive care situation you don't know how close you are to the ending you don't know if there will be an ending and the story it's written in bursts in these intense bursts um and formally that seemed like the interesting artistic decision and so I was I was trying you know not just to to, to get it off my chest but to to formally capture and make something of of what we'd been through there was one uh, part, that, one of those bursts that I wanted to ask you about, actually, which was um, when you say that for the first time fiction has failed you, that you, you can't kind of get out of your own head into a character's head, which is presumably what you do normally uh, throughout your, your life. Um, so I just... say that, but maybe I'm an unreliable narrator <laughs> because at the same time, you know, I'm quoting Philip Larkin, not named, but I'm, I'm quoting yeah. Philip Larkin. And at the same time, it is a, a work of fiction. So maybe I'm sort of slightly undercutting myself and suggesting so that, that there have... is hope, <laughs> that there is there is a time that you can, you can, you will be able to be beyond yourself or that there's something more even if you can't imagine it in the moment so that wasn't a conscious thought that you had at the at the at the time that you were going through this uh, traumatic experience no it's a, it was a true thought in the moment of experiencing it mm. but in the moment of writing it you know that that's the thing that however close it is to what I'd gone through literally autobiographically when you come to write it as fiction 
there is still, even if it's only a wafer thin, there's still a consciousness that you as narrator are not the person that, that, that lived through, perhaps. Um, I read, I loved uh, Lucia Berlin's short story collection, A Manual for Cleaning Women. And in the introduction to that, her son makes this comment about, um, he says, Ma wrote... Uh, autobiographical stories they weren't always literally true but they were close enough for horseshoes <laughs> and that was a lovely way of putting it and I loved the fact writing reading that and then writing multitudes it seemed to open something up for me because it made me think there's another way of doing this you can do this it seemed really bold maybe to a lot of writers writing about what they most directly know and experience is what comes first but for me it certainly didn't and and reading how Lucia Berlin did it um, and funnily, Multitudes, although it's a title story, though it's the last story in this collection, it wasn't the last story that I wrote. And writing that, it, it opened me up in other ways to write passages or moods or, or drafts of the other stories in the collection in, in, in a way that they needed to be written. Um, I'd like to invite you now to maybe read a passage from one of the stories. That would be lovely. I've been talking about Multitudes, so I'll read a couple of passages from Multitudes. Visitations. The consultant comes into the room with eight or nine others. We are so new to this, barely 24 hours new. We don't yet know what this augurs. With the consultant is the registrar and two SHOs, the senior nurse and the other nurses, and even the student nurse who knelt beside me at 3am last night and told me how her newborn son was premature and had to spend the first six weeks of his life in hospital. Our son is a full-term baby of nine days old, and we're still hoping this is nothing serious, a little bug, a false alarm. After the momentary comfort, I felt ashamed. I catch her eye now and smile, and she smiles back but is the first to look away, although it's only later, much later, that I remember this, because right now, and without any preamble, the consultant has started talking, and the first words she said are, it's not good news. Platitudes. Words don't fail us. The problem is the opposite. There are too many words. Too many words with too many syllables. There are also words we wish there weren't. These words in particular. 50%. Numbers games. 50%. 50-50. Heads or tails. Yes or no. We look at each other and say it with horror. 50-50. But as the hours accumulate, two, three, twelve, twenty-four, thirty-six, and his temperature still won't come under control, we start to say it with a desperate sort of hope. Fifty-fifty, we'll take that. There's also half of all survivors. We'll take that too. We'll take anything. We read and reread the leaflet the consultant left us with, which isn't even really a leaflet, just five smudged and increasingly dog-eared photocopied pages stapled together. We read it, hoping there's a paragraph or sentence or statistic we missed. There never is. Personality. Here are the things we know about him. He hates his cot. He wriggles and writhes and thrashes and cries and stiffens his little back flat as a board until we pick him up and I lay him on my stomach, mewling and hiccuping until he falls asleep. His cot its bars painted blue and bright green is called inspiration and it is where people do painful things to him although they all tell us he is too young to make the association i don't believe them he knows i know he knows other things we know about him his smell 
and the particular warm heft of him, the feeling of his rapid hot little breaths against our chests or into our necks and his shuddering exhales and the way his arms fling up above his shoulders and abandon when he sleeps and his drawn up froggy little legs. These are things every parent knows, but they are also specific to him, to us, as if we are the first in the world ever to know them. Other things, he has somehow, at just a week and a half and against all the odds, begun to smile. We know the doctors will say this is impossible, say it's wind or involuntary movement of the muscles, and so we documented furiously, tapping series of pictures into our phones, taking videos, before we look at each other and put down our phones and just smile back at him, eyes thick with tears. Yes, we say, that's right, yes. Other things. We loved him as soon as he was born, bashed up and purple and battle-scarred, and we loved him fiercely and surprisingly, and what we said to him and to each other was, it's you, because it was him, and it had been all along, and it made such sense, that heady, overwhelming flush of recognition. Other things. We knew he was unwell. We knew. Even without a rash or a temperature or any of the leaflet's other signs, we knew he wasn't himself and we pushed for a second opinion and this and the brief hours it won us might be what spares him. Multitudes. Before we are born, we decide in advance the lives we are going to live, the events in them, the people, the choices. We decide according to the lessons we want to learn, and all of us have lived here many times over, learning new and different lessons, meeting over and over the same people in endlessly new configurations. I dream this in the light, hot days of one snatched nap, in the sweat of the faux leather chair bed and the stiff, faded cellular blankets, and for a few minutes when I wake, it all makes sense, and the ancient wisdom in my baby's grave and luminous eyes is obvious, and I think, you're here to teach me too, and for a moment, I even have a fleeting grasp of the lesson. That's beautiful. Thank you very much for reading that for us. There was a question I was going to ask you, and I wasn't sure if it applied to that story, but perhaps it does, where several of your narrators, they kind of, they're, they're looking for patterns and things. They're kind of hidden messages in, in it's either a, a piece of music or, or, or a communication they've had with somebody. Is that some, something we're all kind of programmed to do as, as humans, do you think, to, to sort of define these, these sort of secret messages in, in things? I think it's something that you're especially aware of if you're a novelist. Yeah making up patterns for people, making up symbolism, you know, ordering their lives and their stories. And I think it's something we all do. You know, we all tell ourselves stories about who we are and how we came to be. You know, we tell ourselves those stories about the sorts of relationships we keep getting into. And we tell those stories, say, as families, you know, if um, um, (laughs) I'm one of three sisters and any time if we were growing up, if someone brought a new boyfriend into the fold, the conversation very quickly becomes telling or performing stories of the family and of that person for the other person. You know, you, you, you tell yourself these stories. Families have their myths and their, their roles that they assign to people. Um, countries have these stories. Uh, so I think we're, we're programmed, as creatures, we're programmed to see symbolisms and tell ourselves stories. Uh, on the other hand, I'm also fascinated by Jung. I'm also fascinated by ideas of the collective unconscious. Um, so I suppose there's, there's that element as well and um i suppose then another theme would be in 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 stories like through the wardrobe and 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 chasing and 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 several of them they're sort of 
people who are who are trying to move on in their lives, but for whatever reason they've, they've they're facing tremendous hurdles in in, in doing so. That's that's kind of a, a rich rich vein for you in in all of your writing. I think so. I think I think the some of the stories are about the moments that the character is taking stock of herself, trying to work out those those threshold moments or those moments where you might suddenly see yourself from a slight remove or outside of yourself and you try to work out how did I how did I go so far or how did I go so far wrong so they're assessing or, their limits and maybe hoping to overcome them or yes yeah. possibly yeah okay great uh is um your hope to write more short stories in the future I'd love to. I've um, I've just finished a short story. Uh, the brief was to be um, it was to be a, a, a inspired by a David Bowie song, and um, and I chose as the world falls down from Labyrinth, and so I mean it was unfamiliar territory. I felt slightly sheepish sending the story because of course it's about ten year old girls watching the on, on the verge of adolescence, you know, watching Labyrinth for the first time at a birthday party. Um, so I've written that. I've got a short story forthcoming in uh, Kevin Barry and Olivia's Winter Papers. Um, and I've I've got a couple more on the go as well. I've got a, an, a short story coming out in Sinead Gleeson's new anthology, The Glass Shore, which is Northern Irish Women Writers. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's been utterly addictive. You know, the, having written a collection, I just find myself wanting to write more and more. So t- um, tell me, first of all, about the, the Glass Shore, because that's, um, uh, for many people listening to this, it'll just be published just in the shops, I think, in o- o- early October. Um, so you've written a new story for that. It, was there an- anything in particular that, you know, as I understand it, it's about abortion and sort of judgment people face? That's right. The, the Sinead had asked me for a story, um, as I said, for the long days back. I was quite pregnant at the time, didn't know what I'd write or if I'd write anything again. And I, I gave her multitudes, and she publishes in the collection. And I was unprepared. I was. I thought it was a really important thing to have a, a collection of Irish women writers. So mm-hmm. many anthologies, classic anthologies, don't, where they have the the one or two, you know, same writers keep mm-hmm. appearing. And so I thought it was really important to have this this historical overview. And you know, she's put together. I think it spans four hundred years of, of Irish women, Irish women writers. But what I was unprepared. For was the, the the how emotional it felt, how visceral it felt to suddenly have my story in conversation with these other stories. There's a story in the in the anthology by Maeve Brennan, a, an astonishing story called "The Eldest Child," and Maeve Brennan, you know, maybe better known until recently for her acerbic New Yorker columns. This is a story. It's very dark, and it's about a woman who's grieving the loss of her firstborn son who died a few days after birth. Suddenly, when you place my story multitudes alongside that, the stories speak to each other across the years. And the stories, you find that the stories start start speaking to each other, start sparking these connections, start arguing with each other. Um, and after that collection was published, and I did several events with Sinead, I said to her, we need, there's nothing like this for Northern Irish, Northern Irish women writers. I use, Patricia Craig edited two several brilliant anthologies two of which I use all the time the Belfast anthology and the Ulster anthology but there's nothing you know the there was an anthology called the female line which was published I think more than 30 years ago there was nothing and there are so many 
strong female writers in the north of Ireland. So, so, so I, I was, I was, I was partly responsible for haranguing Sinead into <laughs> doing this anthology. She's put together this anthology, and suddenly it was happening. And she said, "Okay, well, you have to write a story for it." And I thought, um, "What sort of story do I want to represent?" me and Northern Ireland and what will people be reading in 30 years time when they pick up this anthology and something that hadn't changed since the previous anthology 30 years er- earlier and the, the, the stories before that the anthologies before that is um, the the state of um, the, the laws against abortion in Northern Ireland which is in the news you know at the time I was writing the story a young student was being taken through the high courts being prosecuted for trying to give herself an abortion for giving herself an abortion with with pills and I just thought in my story I just thought I thought of how terribly lonely how terrifying and how terribly lonely to go through that and I think that's something that fiction can do it can go into those dark and secret and shameful places as it can go into those places in the psyche and it can bring something back from them and so my story it's quite a quiet story it's about the the 24 hours between this young student who's terrified and feels very very alone and feels she can't tell anyone um taking the first set of the pills that will end this 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 pregnancy that she doesn't want to continue and taking the the second set of, of pills, and it was important to do it in a in a in a quiet way, and also in the story, the her mother is very pro-choice and very the mother has raised her daughters to believe that it's a woman's right to choose. She knows in the story that if she tells her mother, her mother will 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 hold her hand literally and metaphorically will book the flights, will take her to the clinic. Um, it was very important to me to have to have in the story, not someone who's going to throw the daughter out in the street and say, you're no child of mine, which is what you tend to get in, in films or in portrayals of that sort of situation. So I wanted to take a, a quiet but humane and very sad look at that. You know, I'm not, I'm not in the story necessarily saying what, what I believe one way or another because that doesn't always make for the best fiction. But I wanted to just stay with this person as she makes this terribly, terribly hard decision and its consequences. So finally, I just wanted to ask you about something else, which is on on, on your plate. Maybe that's the wrong word at the moment. Uh, And that's uh, your your reimagining of of the the three sisters. And this is opening at um, Belfast Lyric Theatre. Um, in October, can you tell me what's happening That's right. now? We've just started rehearsals. I came, um, I came from rehearsals today, and I'm getting a train back to to, to go back to them. Uh, the play is Chekhov's Three Sisters, which has long been one of my favourite plays. Um, I've reimagined it, rewritten it, set in 90s Belfast. I've kept as far as possible the architecture of the original because I mean Chekhov it's masterful but you've changed some of the names I've changed most of the names um, I've changed some of the characters sometimes you have to make quite radical decisions yeah. in order to be faithful to the original um, but it, we've reimagined it and it's set in 90s Belfast I've always I've seen so many versions of that play and I think it reached a point where I'd seen one too many versions that were crumpled white linen and Panama hats and upper middle-class English, you know, languor, sort of, you know, tasteful melancholy. <laughs> and I felt that there's so much about that play that it's, for me, it's got such a raw, punky ener- energy and it's so much about longing and belonging and love and loss and yearning. And 
the, the Chekhov original, which is about a, a hundred years ago, is about the rise of the mercantile class and, and social change. And I thought the corollary setting it a hundred years on is about migration. Um, and so I've made the, the character of Natasha who comes into the play. She's, I've made her a, 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 an immigrant from Hong Kong who comes in at the start of the play on a student visa. And she's 19, barely speaks the language. Um, by the end of the play, she's fluent with a Belfast accent. We've got an actress who's learning a Belfast accent as we speak. Um, <laughs> and she's fluent. She's had two children. She's raising them. She's The whole play is about the three sisters. They endlessly dream of, they endlessly talk about going elsewhere. America, my version. They don't know whether it's California or Los Angeles or Bel Air or Washington or New York. or They just want to go to America. That's the stand-in for, for, for That's Moscow. That's the stand-in for Moscow. Yeah, yeah it's a stand-in for Moscow. And under their noses the whole time, here's someone who's come to Northern Ireland and who is trying to build a, a life for herself. So a decision like that, I have to move quite far away from the Chekhov. Others, I, I, I stay quite closely to the contours of the play. But it's, it's, it's thrilling and utterly terrifying. Uh, but it's, it's exciting. And you're... You'll be keeping a close eye on rehearsals, as you say, over the next few weeks before the before the opening. And uh, it's October fifteenth. Is that October fifteenth is the yeah. first preview, and opening night is the twentieth. Great. Well, best of luck with that. Thanks to everybody in this live audience for coming to the Irish Times podcast, and to our sound engineer JJ Vernon, Amy Heron, and everybody in the Irish Writers Centre. And a very special thanks to Lucy Caldwell. Thank you. Thank you.